Chapter Seven, Part One of the Stones of Venice, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Krantz. The Stones of Venice, Volume Two by John Ruskin. Chapter Seven: Gothic Palaces, Part One. the buildings out of the remnants of which we have endeavoured to recover some conception of the appearance of venice during the byzantine period contribute hardly anything at this day to the effect of the streets of the city they are too few and too much defaced to attract the eye or influence the feelings the charm which venice still possesses and which for the last fifty years has rendered it the favourite haunt of all the painters of picturesque subject is owing to the effect of the palaces belonging to the period we have now to examine mingled with those of the renaissance this effect is produced in two different ways the renaissance palaces are not more picturesque in themselves than the clubhouses of pall mall but they become delightful by the contrast of their severity and refinement with the rich and rude confusion of the sea-life beneath them and of their white and solid masonry with the green waves remove from beneath them the orange sails of the fishing-boats the black gliding of the gondolas the cumbered decks and rough crews of the barges of traffic and the fretfulness of the green water along their foundations and the renaissance palaces possess no more interest than those of london or paris but the gothic palaces are picturesque in themselves and wield over us an independent power sea and sky and every other accessory might be taken away from them and still they would be beautiful and strange they are not less striking in the loneliest streets of padua and vicenza where many were built during the period of the venetian authority in those cities than in the most crowded thoroughfares of venice itself and if they could be transported into the midst of london they would still not altogether lose their power over the feelings the best proof of this is in the perpetual attractiveness of all pictures however poor in skill which have taken for their subject the principal of these gothic buildings the ducal palace in spite of all architectural theories and teachings the paintings of this building are always felt to be delightful we cannot be wearied by them though often sorely tried but we are not put to the same trial in the case of the palaces of the renaissance they are never drawn singly or as the principal subject nor can they be the building which faces the ducal palace on the opposite side of the piazzetta is celebrated among architects but it is not familiar to our eyes it is painted only incidentally for the completion not the subject of a venetian scene and even the renaissance arcades of st mark's place though frequently painted are always treated as a mere avenue to its byzantine church and colossal tower and the ducal palace itself owes the peculiar charm which we have hitherto felt not so much to its greater size as compared with other gothic buildings or nobler design for it never yet has been rightly drawn as to its comparative isolation the other gothic structures are as much injured by the continual juxtaposition of the renaissance palaces as the latter are aided by it they exhaust their own life by breathing it into the renaissance coldness 
but the ducal palace stands comparatively alone and fully expresses the gothic power and it is just that it should be so seen for it is the original of nearly all the rest it is not the elaborate and more studied development of a national style but the great and sudden invention of one man instantly forming a national style and becoming the model for the imitation of every architect in venice for upwards of a century it was the determination of this one fact which occupied me the greater part of the time i spent in venice it had always appeared to me most strange that there should be in no part of the city any incipient or imperfect types of the form of the ducal palace it was difficult to believe that so mighty a building had been the conception of one man not only in disposition and detail but in style and yet impossible had it been otherwise but that some early examples of approximate gothic form must exist there is not one the palace is built between the final cessation of the byzantine style about thirteen hundred and the date of the ducal palace thirteen twenty to thirteen fifty are all completely distinct in character so distinct that i at first intended the account of them to form a separate section of this volume and there is literally no transitional form between them and the perfection of the ducal palace every gothic building in venice which resembles the latter is a copy of it i do not mean that there was no gothic in venice before the ducal palace but that the mode of its application to domestic architecture had not been determined the real root of the ducal palace is the apse of the church of the frari the traceries of that apse though earlier and ruder in workmanship are nearly the same in mouldings and precisely the same in treatment especially in the placing of the lions heads as those of the great ducal arcade and the originality of thought in the architect of the ducal palace consists in his having adapted those traceries in a more highly developed and finished form to civil uses in the apse of the church they form narrow and tall window lights somewhat more massive than those of northern gothic but similar in application the thing to be done was to adapt these traceries to the forms of domestic building necessitated by national usage the early palaces consisted as we have seen of arcades sustaining walls faced with marble rather broad and long than elevated this form was kept for the ducal palace but instead of round arches from shaft to shaft the frari traceries were substituted with two essential modifications besides being enormously increased in scale and thickness that they might better bear the superincumbent weight the quatrefoil which in the frari windows is above the arch as at a figure twenty one on previous page was in the ducal palace put between the arches as at b the main reason for this alteration being that the bearing power of the arches which was now to be trusted with the weight of a wall forty feet high was thus thrown between the quatrefoils instead of under them and thereby applied at far better advantage and in the second place the joints of the masonry were changed in the frari as often also in st john and st paul's the tracery is formed of two simple crossbars or slabs of stone pierced into the requisite forms and separated by a horizontal joint 
just on a level with the lowest cusp of the quatrefoils, as seen in figure 21a. But at the ducal palace the horizontal joint is in the center of the quatrefoils, and two others are introduced beneath it at right angles to the run of the mouldings, as seen in figure 21b. The ducal palace builder was sternly resolute in carrying out this rule of masonry and the traceries of the large upper windows where the cusps are cut through as in the quatrefoil figure twenty two the lower cusp is left partly solid as at a merely that the joint a b may have its right place and direction the ascertaining the formation of the ducal palace traceries from those of the frari and its priority to all other buildings which resemble it in venice rewarded me for a great deal of uninteresting labor in the examination of mouldings and other minor features of the gothic palaces in which alone the internal evidence of their date was to be discovered there being no historical records whatever respecting them but the accumulation of details on which the complete proof of the fact depends could not either be brought within the compass of this volume or be made in any wise interesting to the general reader i shall therefore without involving myself in any discussion give a brief account of the development of gothic design in venice as i believe it to have taken place i shall possibly be able at some future period so to compress the evidence on which my conviction rests as to render it intelligible to the public while in the meantime some of the more essential points of it are thrown together in the appendix and in the history of the ducal palace given in the next chapter according then to the statement just made the gothic architecture of venice is divided into two great periods one in which while various irregular gothic tendencies are exhibited no consistent type of domestic building was developed the other in which a formed and consistent school of domestic architecture resulted from the direct imitation of the great design of the ducal palace we must deal with these two periods separately the first of them being that which has been often above alluded to under the name of the transitional period we shall consider in succession the general form the windows doors balconies and parapets of the gothic palaces belonging to each of these periods first general form we have seen that the wrecks of the byzantine palaces consisted merely of upper and lower arcades surrounding quartiles the disposition of the interiors being now entirely changed and their original condition untraceable the entrances to these early buildings are for the most part merely large circular arches the central features of their continuous arcades they do not present us with definitely separated windows and doors but a great change takes place in the gothic period these long arcades break as it were into pieces and coagulate into central and lateral windows and small arched doors pierced in great surfaces of brick wall the sea story of a byzantine palace consists of seven nine or more arches in a continuous line but the sea story of a gothic palace consists of a door and one or two windows on each side as in a modern house the first story of a byzantine palace consists of perhaps eighteen or twenty arches reaching from one side of the house to the other 
the first story of a gothic palace consists of a window of four or five lights in the centre and one or two single windows on each side the germ however of the gothic arrangement is already found in the byzantine where as we have seen the arcades though continuous are always composed of a central mass and two wings of smaller arches the central group becomes the door or the middle light of the gothic palace and the wings break into its lateral windows but the most essential difference in the entire arrangement is the loss of the unity of conception which regulated byzantine composition how subtle the sense of gradation which disposed the magnitudes of the early palaces we have seen already but i have not hitherto noticed that the byzantine work was centralized in its ornamentation as much as in its proportions not only were the lateral capitals and archivolts kept comparatively plain while the central ones were sculptured but the midmost piece of sculpture whatever it might be capital inlaid circle or architrave was always made superior to the rest in the fandaco de terci for instance the midmost capital of the upper arcade is the key to the whole group larger and more studied than all the rest and the lateral ones are so disposed as to answer each other on the opposite sides thus a being put for the central one f e b c a c b e f a sudden break of the system being admitted in one unique capital at the extremity of the series now long after the byzantine arcades had been contracted into windows this system of centralization was more or less maintained and in all the early groups of windows of five lights the midmost capital is different from the two on each side of it which always correspond so strictly is this the case that whenever the capitals of any group of windows are not centralized in this manner but are either entirely like each other or all different so as to show no correspondence it is a certain proof even if no other should exist of the comparative lateness of the building in every group of windows in venice which i was able to examine and which were centralized in this manner i found evidence in their mouldings of their being anterior to the ducal palace that palace did away with the subtle proportion and centralization of the byzantine its arches are of equal width and its capitals are all different and ungrouped some indeed are larger than the rest but this is not for the sake of proportion only for particular service when more weight is to be borne but among other evidences of the early date of the sea facade of that building is one subtle and delicate concession to the system of centralization which is finally closed the capitals of the upper arcade are as i said all different and show no arranged correspondence with each other but the central one is of pure parian marble while all the others are of istrian stone the bold decoration of the central window and balcony above in the ducal palace is only a peculiar expression of the principality of the central window which was characteristic of the gothic period not less than of the byzantine in the private palaces the central windows become of importance by their number of lights in the ducal palace such an arrangement was for various reasons inconvenient and the central window which so far from being more important than the others 
is every way inferior in design to the two at the eastern extremity of the façade, was nevertheless made the leading feature by its noble canopy and balcony. Such being the principal differences in the general conception of the Byzantine and Gothic palaces, the particulars in the treatment of the latter are easily stated. The marble facings are gradually removed from the walls, and the bare brick either stands forth confessed boldly, contrasted with the marble shafts and archivolts of the windows, or it is covered with stucco painted in fresco, of which more hereafter. The ducal palace, as in all other respects, is an exact expression of the middle point in the change. It still retains marble facing, but instead of being disposed in slabs, as in the Byzantine times, it is applied in solid bricks or blocks of marble, eleven and a half inches long by six inches high. The stories of the Gothic palaces are divided by string courses, considerably bolder in projection than those of the Byzantines, and more highly decorated. And while the angles of the Byzantine palaces are quite sharp and pure, those of the Gothic palaces are wrought into a chamfer, filled by small twisted shafts which have capitals under the cornice of each story. These capitals are little observed in the general effect, but the shafts are of essential importance in giving an aspect of firmness to the angle, a point of peculiar necessity in Venice, where, owning to the various convolutions of the canals, the angles of the palaces are not only frequent, but often necessarily acute, every inch of ground being valuable. In other cities the appearance, as well as the assurance of stability, can always be secured by the use of massy stones, as in the fortress palaces of Florence. But it must have been always desirable at Venice to build as lightly as possible, in consequence of the comparative insecurity of the foundations. The early palaces were, as we have seen, perfect models of grace and lightness, and the Gothic which followed, though much more massive in the style of its details, never admitted more weight into its structure than was absolutely necessary for its strength. Hence every Gothic palace has the appearance of enclosing as many rooms, and attaining as much strength as is possible, with a minimum quantity of brick and stone. The traceries of the windows, which in northern Gothic only support the glass, at Venice support the building, and thus the greater ponderousness of the traceries is only an indication of the greater lightness of the structure. Hence when the Renaissance architects give their opinions as to the stability of the ducal palace when injured by fire, one of them, Christopher Sorte, says that he thinks it by no means laudable that the Serenissimo Dominio of the Venetian Senate should live in a palace built in the air. And again, Andrea della Valle says that the wall of the saloon is thicker by fifteen inches than the shafts below it, projecting nine inches within and six without, standing as if in the air above the piazza. And yet this wall is so nobly and strongly knit together, that Rosconi, though himself altogether devoted to the Renaissance school, declares that the fire which had destroyed the whole interior of the palace had done this wall no more harm than the bite of a fly to an elephant. Troveremo che il danno che ha patito queste muraglie sarà conforme alla pacatura d'una mosca fatta ad un elefante. 
and so in all the other palaces built at the time consummate strength was joined with a lightness of form and sparingness of material which rendered it eminently desirable that the eye should be convinced by every possible expedient of the stability of the building and these twisted pillars at the angles are not among the least important means adopted for this purpose for they seem to bind the walls together as a cable binds a chest and the ducal palace where they are carried up the angle of an unbroken wall forty feet high they are divided into portions gradually diminishing in length towards the top by circular bands or rings set with the nail-head or dog-tooth ornament vigorously projecting and giving the column nearly the aspect of the stalk of a reed its diminishing proportions being exactly arranged as they are by nature in all jointed plants at the top of the palace like the wheat stalk branching into the ear of corn it expands into a small niche with a pointed canopy which joins with the fantastic parapet in at once relieving and yet making more notable by its contrast the weight of massy wall below the arrangement is seen in the woodcut chapter eight the angle shafts being slightly exaggerated in thickness together with their joints as otherwise they would hardly have been intelligible on so small a scale the ducal palace is peculiar in these niches at the angles which throughout the rest of the city appear on churches only but some may perhaps have been removed by restorations together with the parapets with which they were associated of these roof parapets of venice it has been already noticed that the examples which remain differ from those of all other cities of italy in their purely ornamental character chapter one they are not battlements properly so called still less machicolated cornices such as crown the fortress palaces of the great mainland nobles but merely adaptations of the light and crown-like ornaments which crest the walls of the arabian mosque nor are even these generally used on the main walls of the palaces themselves they occur on the ducal palace on the casa d'oro and some years back were still standing on the fondaco de terci but the majority of the gothic palaces have the plain dog-tooth cornice under the tiled projecting roof volume one chapter fourteen and the highly decorated parapet is employed only on the tops of walls which surround courts or gardens and which without such decoration would have been utterly devoid of interest figure twenty three represents at b part of a parapet of this kind which surrounds the courtyard of a palace in the calle de bagatin between san g grisostomo and san canzian the whole is of brick and the mouldings peculiarly sharp and varied the height of each separate pinnacle being about four feet crowning a wall twelve or fifteen feet high a piece of the moulding which surrounds the quatrefoil is given larger in the figure at a together with the top of the small arch below having the common venetian dental round it and a delicate little moulding with dog-tooth ornament to carry the flanks of the arch the moulding of the brick is throughout sharp and beautiful in the highest degree one of the most curious points about it is the careless way in which the curved outlines of the pinnacles are cut into the plain brickwork with no regard whatever to the places of its joints the weather of course wears the bricks at the exposed joints and jags the outline a little but the work has stood evidently from the fourteenth century without sustaining much harm 
this parapet may be taken as a general type of the wall parapet of venice in the gothic period some being much less decorated and others much more richly the most beautiful in venice is in the little calle opening on the campo and Trogetto san samuel it has delicately carved devices in stone let into each pinnacle the parapets of the palaces themselves were lighter and more fantastic consisting of narrow lance-like spires of marble set between the broader pinnacles which were in such cases generally carved into the form of a fleur-de-lis the french word gives the reader the best idea of the form though he must remember that this use of the lily for the parapets has nothing to do with france but is the carrying out of the byzantine system of floral ornamentation which introduced the outline of the lily everywhere so that i have found it convenient to call its most beautiful capitals the lily capitals of st mark's but the occurrence of this flower more distinctly than usual on the battlements of the ducal palace was the cause of some curious political speculation in the year fifteen eleven when a piece of one of these battlements was shaken down by the great earthquake of that year sanuto notes in his diary that the piece that fell was just that which bore the lily and records sundry sinister anticipations founded on this important omen of impending danger to the adverse french power as there happens in the ducal palace to be a joint in the pinnacles which exactly separates the part which bears the lily from that which is fastened to the cornice it is no wonder that the omen proved fallacious the decorations of the parapet were completed by attaching gilded balls of metal to the extremities of the leaves of the lilies and of the intermediate spires so as literally to form for the wall a diadem of silver touched upon the points with gold the image being rendered still more distinct in the casa d'oro by variation in the height of the pinnacles the highest being in the centre of the front very few of these light roof parapets now remain they are of course the part of the building which dilapidation first renders it necessary to remove that of the ducal palace however though often i doubt not restored retains much of the ancient form and is exceedingly beautiful though it has no appearance from below of being intended for protection but serves only by its extreme lightness to relieve the eye when wearied by the breadth of wall beneath it is nevertheless a most serviceable defence for any person walking along the edge of the roof it has some appearance of insecurity owing to the entire independence of the pieces of stone composing it which though of course fastened by iron look as if they stood balanced on the cornice like the pillars of stonehenge but i have never heard of its having been disturbed by anything short of an earthquake and as we have seen even the great earthquake of fifteen eleven though it much injured the gorn or battlements at the casa d'oro and threw down several statues at st mark's only shook one lily from the brow of the ducal palace although however these light and fantastic forms appear to have been universal in the battlements meant primarily for decoration there was another condition of parapet altogether constructed for the protection of persons walking on the roofs or in the galleries of the churches and from these more substantial and simple defences the balconies to which the gothic palaces owe half of their picturesque effect were immediately derived 
the balcony being in fact nothing more than a portion of such roof parapets arranged round a projecting window-sill sustained on brackets as in the central example of the annexed figure we must therefore examine these defensive balustrades and the derivative balconies consecutively obviously a parapet with an unbroken edge upon which the arm may rest a condition above noticed volume one as essential to the proper performance of its duty can be constructed only in one of three ways it must either be one of solid stone decorated if at all by mere surface sculpture as in the uppermost example in figure twenty four above or two pierced into some kind of tracery as in the second or three composed of small pillars carrying a level bar of stone as in the third this last condition being in a diseased and swollen form familiar to us in the balustrades of our bridges number one of these three kinds the first which is employed for the pulpit at torcello and in the nave of st mark's whence the uppermost example is taken is beautiful when sculpture so rich can be employed upon it but it is liable to objection first because it is heavy and unlike a parapet when seen from below and secondly because it is inconvenient in use the position of leaning over a balcony becomes cramped and painful if long continued unless the foot can be sometimes advanced beneath the ledge on which the arm leans that is between the balusters or traceries which of course cannot be done in the solid parapet it is also more agreeable to be able to see partially down through the penetrations than to be obliged to lean far over the edge the solid parapet was rarely used in venice after the earlier ages number two the traceried parapet is chiefly used in the gothic of the north from which the above example in the casa contarini fasan is directly derived it is when well designed the richest and most beautiful of all forms and many of the best buildings of france and germany are dependent for half their effect upon it its only fault being a slight tendency to fantasticism it was never frankly received in venice where the architects had unfortunately returned to the renaissance forms before the flamboyant parapets were fully developed in the north but in the early stage of the renaissance a kind of pierced parapet was employed founded on the old byzantine interwoven traceries that is to say the slab of stone was pierced here and there with holes and then an interwoven pattern traced on the surface round them the difference in system will be understood in a moment by comparing the uppermost example in the figure at the side which is a northern parapet from the cathedral of abbeville with the lowest from a secret chamber in the casa foscari it will be seen that the venetian one is far more simple and severe yet singularly piquant the black penetrations telling sharply on the plain broad surface far inferior in beauty it has yet one point of superiority to that of abbeville that it proclaims itself more definitely to be stone the other has rather the look of lace the intermediate figure is a panel of the main balcony of the ducal palace and is introduced here as being an exactly transitional condition between the northern and venetian types it was built when the german gothic workmen were exercising considerable influence 
over those in venice and there was some chance of the northern parapet introducing itself it actually did so as above shown in the casa contarini fasan but was for the most part stoutly resisted and kept at bay by the byzantine form the lowest in the last figure until that form itself was displaced by the common vulgar renaissance baluster a grievous loss for the severe pierced type was capable of a variety as endless as the fantasticism of our own anglo-saxon manuscript ornamentation number three the baluster parapet long before the idea of tracery had suggested itself to the minds either of venetian or any other architects it had of course been necessary to provide protection for galleries edges of roofs etc and the most natural form in which such protection could be obtained was that of a horizontal bar or handrail sustained upon short shafts or balusters as in figure twenty four this form was above all others likely to be adopted where variations of greek or roman pillared architecture were universal in the larger masses of the building the parapet became itself a small series of columns with capitals and architraves and whether the crossbar laid upon them should be simply horizontal and in contact with their capitals or sustained by mimic arches round or pointed depended entirely on the system adopted in the rest of the work where the large arches were round the small balustrade arches would be so likewise where those were pointed these would become so in sympathy with them unfortunately wherever a balcony or parapet is used in an inhabited house it is of course the part of the structure which first suffers from dilapidation as well as that of which the security is most anxiously cared for the main pillars of a casement may stand for centuries unshaken under the steady weight of the superincumbent wall but the cement and various insetting of the balconies are sure to be disturbed by the irregular pressures and impulses of the persons leaning on them while whatever extremity of decay may be allowed in other parts of the building the balcony as soon as it seems dangerous will assuredly be removed or restored the reader will not if he considers this be surprised to hear that among all the remnants of the venetian domestic architecture of the eleventh twelfth and thirteenth centuries there is not a single instance of the original balconies being preserved the palace mentioned below in the piazza of the rialto has indeed solid slabs of stone between its shafts but i cannot be certain that they are of the same period if they are this is the only existing example of the form of protection employed for casements during this transitional period and it cannot be reasoned from as being the general one it is only therefore in the churches of torcello morano and st mark's that the ancient forms of gallery defence may still be seen at morano between the pillars of the apse a beautiful balustrade is employed of which a single arch is given in the plate opposite figure four with its section figure five and at st mark's a noble round arched parapet with small pillars of precisely the same form as those of murano but shorter and bound at the angles into groups of four by the serpentine knot so often occurring in lombardic work runs round the whole exterior of the lower story of the church 
and round great part of its interior galleries, alternating with the more fantastic form, figure 6. In domestic architecture the remains of the original balconies begin to occur first in the beginning of the fourteenth century, when the round arch had entirely disappeared, and the parapet consists almost without exception of a series of small trefoiled arches, cut boldly through a bar of stone which rests upon the shafts, at first very simple, and generally adorned with a cross at the point of each arch, as in figure seven in the last plate, which gives the angle of such a balcony on a large scale, but soon enriched into the beautiful conditions, figures two and three, and sustained on brackets formed of lion's heads, as seen in the central example of their entire effect, figure one. In later periods the round arches return, then the interwoven Byzantine form, and finally, as above noticed, the common English or classical balustrade, of which, however, exquisite examples for grace and variety of outline are found designed in the backgrounds of Paul Veronese. I could willingly follow out this subject fully, but it is impossible to do so without leaving Venice, for the chief city of Italy, as far as regards the strict effect of the balcony, is Verona and if we were once to lose ourselves among the sweet shadows of its lonely streets where the falling branches of the flowers stream like fountains through the pierced traceries of the marble there is no saying whether we might soon be able to return to our immediate work yet before leaving the subject of the balcony altogether i must allude for a moment to the peculiar treatment of the ironwork out of which it is frequently wrought on the mainland of italy never in venice the iron is always wrought, not cast, beaten first into thin leaves, and then cut either into strips or bands, two or three inches broad, which are bent into various curves to form the sides of the balcony, or else into actual leafage, sweeping and free, like the leaves of nature, with which it is richly decorated. There is no end to the variety of design, no limit to the lightness and flow of the forms, which the workman can produce out of iron treated in this manner, and it is very nearly as impossible for any metalwork so handled to be poor or ignoble in effect as it is for cast metalwork to be otherwise. End of chapter seven, part one. Recording by Pamela Krantz.